today by Batia Unger Sargon. She is an editor at Newsweek and the author of the recent book, Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy, which sounds really scary. Um, so <laughs> hopefully, you know, she can, uh, you know, give us some some dish on how the world is or is not ending democracies or is not ending. Um, but I wanted you on today to talk about specifically some stuff that's happening in the news right now uh, related to this endless sort of like nightmare carousel of a, of a news cycle surrounding Joe Rogan and the experience that is Joe Rogan. So um, I'm so glad that you were able to join me today, Batya. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm such a huge cat fan. I love your work. Um, I think that you are, you know, I think I've told you this before, but, um, you know, one of the most important voices of our generation. So I'm really excited to be here. That is so nice. I don't deserve it. But um, I'm very, very excited to talk to you today. And I wanted to start by getting you to kind of give me and our audience a history lesson about journalism as a working class pursuit, um, because historically, some interesting things have happened when someone starts targeting the sort of so-called unwashed masses with news that's tailored to their interests. And I feel as though there may be some echoes of what's happened historically now visible in what's going on now. So can you kind of just outline that? Yeah, absolutely. So American journalism for much of the 20th century was a working class trade, which is so hard to square with the class of journalists today who are very much uh, an elite caste at this point. Uh, American journalism started in the 19th century as a working class revolution, really. It was a populist revolution. So the fathers of American journalism, Benjamin Day and Joseph Pulitzer, um, they were very conscious of speaking for the little guy. Um, they felt that the point of journalism was to give a voice to the disempowered and to, to, to the masses against the elites. And, you know, Pulitzer, especially living during the Gilded Age, um, there were there were the, the, the gap between the elites and, and the masses was enormous. It was a lot like today. Um, and he really just felt the, that journalism should be by foreign about the working class. And throughout the 20th century, you know, most journalists um, really until the second half of the 20th century didn't have a college degree. It was the kind of pursuit you picked up while doing it. Um, it was the kind of thing you learned from somebody else who probably didn't have a college degree. Journalists uh, earned working class wages. It was seen as a very low status job and they lived in working class neighborhoods. So maybe they made a little bit more than their neighbor, the factory worker, but not much more. And if you fast forward to today, journalists, you know, make a little bit less than their neighbor, the corporate lawyer. So, uh, you know, journalism today is one of the most highly educated industries in America, despite the fact that as throughout the history of journalism in America, people understood you can't really teach it. Um, you have to do it to learn it. Um, you know, to become a journalist today, you have to take multiple unpaid internships in the most American, uh, expensive American cities throughout college. So already anybody who's paying their way through college is disqualified. You then have to go to the best colleges because the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal, NPR, they, they select their interns from the top 1% of American universities. So, you know, you have to be born rich. You have to go to one of these fancy schools. Um, you have to then take 
more unpaid internships, you know, in, in these very expensive cities, because that's the only place that still has a journalism industry. Um, you have to then move to one of these cities and accept a starting salary of $35,000 while paying, you know, New York rent prices, San Francisco rent prices. So essentially, again, you have to come from money in order to do this. So, you know, there are a few exceptions, right? You know, there's like one or two working class kids who who managed to sneak their way in. But this is the rule, you know, the people online on Twitter who are, you know, speaking on behalf of the downtrodden or whatever, they're all making six figures and they live in neighborhoods, the kinds of neighborhoods where essentially you don't really need the police because poor people could never dream of even living in these neighborhoods that, you know, they're so expensive. Um, so, so, and that changed what journalism does and what it looks like. So if once journalists were working class and they felt that journalism should be a revolution, a crusade on behalf of the working class, today they are part of the elites and they produce, you know, if journalism was once by, for, and about the working class, today it is by, for, and about the elites. It's, you know, these journalists go to the same universities as the politicians that they cover. They go to the same universities. Their kids go to, you know, schools, go go to schools with, you know, the, the children of billionaires, the children of tech giants, you know, and that's, that's the waters they're swimming in. So they're no longer outside power looking in. They're inside power trying to impress the other elites around them. And of course, all these people are liberals, right? So it's like all of these liberal elites who are sort of still high on the the, the vision of themselves as being on behalf of, you know, the little guy, the crusader on behalf of the little guy, when actually what they're doing is producing content for other elites. And that's why you've seen this real shift to where, you know, once journalists gave politicians a hard time today, you know, so many journalists at elite institutions see themselves as, you know, the spokespeople and defenders of congresswomen, you know, like as long as they're from the right, you know, marginalized community, there's just been a real total shift in how um, journalists do the job. You know, the course of the 20th century was really like journalists abandoning the working class. And what I argue in my book is that all of this woke stuff around race and gender is really an alibi to where journalists can act like they're still on behalf of the little guy while essentially abandoning them whole hog. And I think that the the Joe Rogan story really plays directly, directly into this narrative. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's interesting. I um, am one of the weirdos who managed to kind of slide into this industry sideways. You know, I started uh-huh. out as a, as a freelancer. I was going to try to be a copywriter. And this was in 2007 to 2008. I was, you know, taking classes in copywriting. And I was like, all right, I'm going to pivot to doing this because I had been a publicist and I was really, really bad at it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what a badge of honor, no, to be bad at that job. To be bad at, a, at publicity. Yeah, it turns yeah. out, um, you know, you have to you have to be much more a fan of um bullshitting other people. Right, exactly. You only tell the truth. Like I can't imagine (laughs) you bullshitting anybody, you know, like your kind of jouissance is in telling people the truths that they don't want to hear. It's like it's such a great quality, but sort of deadly for PR. <laughs> oh, man. You have such a way of making my my horrible character flaws sound like they're actually <laughs> strengths and assets. I really appreciate this. So I was, you know, I was trying to become a copywriter and then the economy imploded and I could not find work. And so I had to just freelance. Um, and I freelanced for 15 years now is what I've been doing. And so I managed to kind of from the ground up and also because I was lucky enough to marry some someone, um, you know, who was able to like supply me with health insurance through his work, um, was able to kind of cobble together a living over the course of many, many years doing this. And I didn't realize until really recently, like maybe within the past three years, 
that so many of my colleagues and peers in the journalism space all went to the same schools, like even the same prep yeah. schools, the same colleges, yep. like they all know each other, you know, yep. um, and that was really, it was like a, a universe that I did not know existed until I accidentally bumped up against it. And that was fascinating. Totally. Like those are the people who are sitting there tweeting, you know, anyone who doesn't support defund the police is a racist and would have supported, you know, slavery. Like these people all, you don't understand, these people went to Andover and then went to Harvard and they're the children of like billionaires essentially who who have bought them three apartments to live in on the Upper West Side while they slum it and act like, you know, they're journalists while writing for the Daily Beast or whatever it is. You know, like that is the, that is a typical story for how people become journalists. And, you know, I think people really do not understand that they turn on CNN and they just don't understand why these people have so much contempt for them. And it's mm-hmm. because these people are extremely wealthy and, you know, part of an upper caste um, that has huge amounts of contempt for working class people, working class Americans, and anybody who has the views of normal Americans who didn't go to Harvard and didn't go to Princeton and didn't go to these universities where they teach them crazy things like that it's racist to want to live in a colorblind society. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, too, because I feel like there are there are always a handful of people who, you know, who didn't grow up um, as members of the sort of elite class, but who came from small towns and, but are nevertheless sort of, they have, they have this sort of the zeal of the convert when it comes to being contemptuous of, for, you know, who they imagine to be like the average Trump voter. Um, It's almost like there's more contempt there because there's something resonant in their background. They're like, you know, this is my family and I need to distance myself from it. Or like, this is my hometown and I need to distance myself from it. So there's that element of it, of being too close to it that makes them that much more determined to sort of reject it. Yeah, or like they the, the kid who bullied them in high school for being smart and good at school is now a Trump voter who has to work, you know, three part-time jobs and, you know, is addicted to painkillers, right? But they don't see them as this person who like peaked in high school and was maybe not very nice to them and now their life is just terrible, you know, and they're on the verge of committing a death of despair, you know, while they are sitting in New York City sitting pretty making, you know, $150,000 a year, right? To like sit at home and tweet stop the spread, right? They don't see that disparity instead there's just this like this hatred of the person who maybe wasn't nice to them in high school right i mean and that that's the thing is like you know the reason to support the working class is not because they're virtuous you know it's not because they're like victims who you should like think highly highly of you know it's about just having humility about just the huge disparity between the people telling the great american story and the people they're supposed to be writing about whose lives they literally cannot comprehend because they are so far above them and in, instead of encountering that and 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 really dealing with the implications of that gap they just smear them as racists or rubes it's 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 really awful like the punching downness of the media towards so many people who are struggling is it's it's really 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 horrifying Mm, yeah yeah we talked uh phoebe and i have talked about this before uh, in terms of the way that um a lot of people consume content about these parts of the country that they don't live in and have never visited in which the people who live there are treated sort of like um, like a novel species of animal that's not quite <laughs> human. Um, you have, you know, you like you're on Instagram, you follow like a bunch of, you know, 23 year old Mormon women who are married with children already and you treat them like this bizarre novelty, like look at these aliens. Um, so I wanted to rewind back to where you were talking about the 
the shift in journalism that happened during the Gilded Age, where Pulitzer and his cohort decided that they wanted to shift from talking about elite society to making journalism that was more in line with the interests of the working class. Can you talk about like what kind of stories were in the news before and then what yeah, happened totally. after? So Pulitzer was actually the second generation of the penny press. The real revolutionary was um, Benjamin Day, who was a 14-year-old farm boy um, whose father pulled him out of school when he was 14 to apprentice to uh, a printer because, you know, the family was very poor. And he, you know, arrived in New York City in about, you know, 1829. Um, and the, the all of the news, there were a lot of newspapers. You know, he didn't struggle to find work. He moved from paper to paper, but they were all catering to the elites. They were either catering to the economic business elites or they were uh, catering to the political elites. And there was nobody who was writing to the masses. But because Day lived in a working class neighborhood, he knew that the majority of poor Americans could read. That was very unusual um, at the time. You know, America was the first country where, you know, if you stopped a, a stranger in the street, you could be reasonably sure that they knew how to read. And the city, you know, New York City was just festooned with writing. I mean, there was like placards everywhere. And there was writing for the poor and the masses. They would spend what little money they had to buy things like religious pamphlets or like romances or adventure stories or gallows confessions was like a really popular genre at the time. And Day realized that, you know, there was no newspaper for these people. But he, you know, and his economic fortunes sort of kept going down and down. He kept having to move his family further, you know, down, um, you know, further south in Manhattan. And as he did so, he became even more enmeshed in in what it was like to be poor in America. And he realized, like, that there were stories there. Uh, and he thought that there was, you know, a market here. And so he really, as in, he, he bought a print shop and then sort of as a way of just really advertising his print shop, he created a newspaper. And the but the real revolution that he had was until that time, you know, you couldn't really buy a single newspaper. You had to subscribe, and the subscriptions were expensive because the papers were catering to the elite. So it cost ten dollars a year for a yearly subscription to most of these papers. Now bear in mind that a domestic servant, which was a job that a lot of women had, she would make five dollars a month. That was her salary, right? She's not going to spend two months' salary on a newspaper written by people who don't know she exists, except when she like brings them tea or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So he he realized like that a key to write to having a newspaper for the poor was to have it be economically accessible to them. So he invented the idea in America that you would have newsies, you would have newsboys selling the paper on the street and you could pay you could pay for just one paper and he set the price at a penny, which was what an apple cost or a skein of thread, like it was totally within the means of poor New Yorkers. And he then had, you know, a further insight, which was, look, I got to make sure that, you know, there's something here that's worth that penny because this person only has two pennies. And I think that he, in doing that, like that move of turning the poor and the working class from pity cases into customers, that there was something in that, that he really sort of conferred a dignity upon them. And it worked. It totally worked. He became so rich in five years. His paper was the most read paper in the entire New York, because of course, there are much more people who are poor and working class than there are elites. And of course, the elites started you know, buying the paper too. And one of the things that he really focused on was crime. His first reporter that he hired would go to the daybreak court every morning at 4 a.m., which was when the 
cops would bring in the criminals that they had rounded up overnight and he would take down their stories and he was he was very poetic writer but what he essentially did was he made the poor feel like they were worthy of being gossiped about you know it was local news and of course local news to poor and working class people is going to be full of crime because they have to live with it so he really focused on what their life was like he whenever there was um a union strike he would print their demands in full he was pro working class because that was his customer base and pulitzer the thing pulitzer really did was he took all of this he amped it up by 10 and then he insisted on accuracy so benjamin day was sort of like he really cared about the story and he did not care so much about the accuracy but for pulitzer the facts were really important and also the fact that you know there was a big placard in his newsroom that said nothing is worth being written that isn't certain to be read by the masses he really for his entire life he saw them as you know the 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 consumers of his journalism and the reason that he toiled and it was like very much a commitment for him and you know so you would have like the elite papers which would be covering what it's like to you know the new york times is one of the initial um slogans for the new york times that was you know rejected but very apt was it will not soil the breakfast linens okay <laughs> exactly exactly and that's a knock against pulitzer right that's like you know th- these papers are so full of dirtiness right that they will soil your breakfast linens and we will not right and it's, so it's you know in what they covered they signaled who the papers were for that is fascinating and it sounds like you have the seeds here of not just TMZ and other gossip sites uh, you know where it's like the, the aspiration is to be talked about, even if it's for something bad, you know, it's sort of the reality mm-hmm. TV culture that we live in right now. Um, but also the obsession, like the contemporary obsession with true crime podcasts. So you have like, totally, you know, your gallows totally. confessions back at this, you know, the turn of the, what is this, the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and now you, yeah, you know, you've got my favorite murder. Yeah. Although I have to say, I feel like today the people consuming true, like people who live in like, you know, people living in like in Chicago on the South side are not listening to true crime podcasts, right? Because it's like right outside their window. And I feel like there's like a lot of this, like elites consume that stuff because of the comfortable distance they have from it. Whereas like the, like the quote unquote true crime that elites have to deal with is cancellation. Like, I think that's why there's such a deliciousness when people like they can't wait to, to have see the next person canceled and to read all the crimes because of course like the crime of being wrong about something is the only crimes that like you know upper class white elites ever have to deal with in their lives god i never thought about it that way <laughs> so we have then historically day followed by pulitzer pivoting to working class audience that uh, and, and, you know, creating content that is of interest to them and becoming phenomenally successful as a result. Am I crazy to see certain parallels between this and the Joe Rogan experience, which is by far like the most popular podcast in the country, um, you know, has millions of listeners, uh, vastly more popular than anything being produced by legacy media like CNN or the New York Times. I totally agree with that reading. I think that Rogan's podcast is a lot like talk radio. I mean, like, I don't know about you. I don't have the time to listen to a three-hour podcast. Like, I just don't. But you know who does is truck drivers, mechanics, people whose jobs involve their hands, 
which leaves their minds available for information. And, you know, back in the day in the in the uh, the factories and the sweatshops in New York City, um, you know, at the turn of the 20th century, a lot of them were populated by recent Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe, and they would always assign one person as the reader. So you would have, you know, uh, you know, 500 girls rolling cigarettes, and one of them would be their her job would be to read poetry and novels and the Yiddish newspapers to all the other girls, right? That That's kind of how talk radio has always worked. It's, mm-hmm. you know, for people whose jobs involve using their hands. And I think that um, it's very clear that um, Rogan's podcast is operating the same way. You know, he has a very mixed, you know, there's a very mixed income in terms of who listens. Um, but I know from my life, like who tells me that they're listening to Joe Rogan and it's always working class people um, who are spending that time with him. And, you know, he didn't go to college, I don't believe. And he's sort of really the inverse mirror of, you know, CNN and The New York Times. Um, There's something happening where he's getting slammed by people in legacy liberal media on the grounds that he's spreading misinformation, quote unquote, um, you know, that he's costing lives. You're often seeing that. That's the new line, right? He's, you know, costing people their lives as if people are sitting there saying, well, I was considering getting vaccinated, but then I listened to Joe Rogan and decided not to. And the fantasy operating there is that people go to Joe Rogan and, and, and they go to him for advice and they listen to everything he says and they follow blindly. Of course they don't. He is mirroring their own skepticism about, you know, just placing like CNN both clowning themselves with misinformation about COVID. Um, but the, the what's betrayed by that error, you know, that category error that's being made by the elite medias that hate him is what their fantasy is, which is they believe that they should have the right to tell the very working class people who they have contempt for what to do and be blindly, obediently followed, right? And so they have this fantasy that the newscasters or the opinion channels or the, you know, whoever is, is succeeding, right? Whoever is getting that audience, that they are surely, you know, creating zombies out of their audience and telling them exactly what to do. And the truth is the exact reverse. And it's the same thing with Fox News, you know, so you have a lot of, you know, the New York Times used to run these articles like help Fox News is eating my mother's brain, you know, or like, you know, just like this, this fantasy that Fox News is turning, you know, working class Americans into conservative zombies, when the truth is the exact opposite. The reason that Fox News is conservative is because 75% of its audience is working working class or doesn't have a college degree. And it is reflecting their skepticism about liberal mores. It's catering to that audience. So I think that that is definitely happening with the the criticism of Rogan. Um, You know, anybody who's succeeding um, in a moment of extreme, extreme uh, credibility gaps when it comes to the liberal mainstream media is going to come in for the kinds of attacks that we're seeing. They get smeared as racist, called disinformation, um, as well as, you know, anybody that, that listens to them or follows them is smeared in a similar way. Mm. So I want to put a pin in the discussion of zombies because I think that's a really key point. Um, But before (laughs) we do that, just in case anybody somehow managed to miss like the details of this ridiculous story that won't die, um, I should probably just try to recap briefly. Uh, For the past couple of weeks, there's been a great deal of agitation surrounding Joe Rogan's podcast on Spotify. Spotify is the sole distributor of this podcast. They paid him $100 million to basically house his little empire that he had already built. So he was existing massively popular podcast. um, And that's what Spotify bought. They bought Rogan and his content, but most 
most specifically, they bought his audience to try and bring podcast listeners over to Spotify, which is not historically the most convenient place to listen to podcasts um the app kind of sucks for that so yeah i think and i think that has a lot to do with why they decided they wanted to invest there as a means of sort of differentiating themselves so within the past couple of weeks starting with a campaign by neil young who uh issued this ultimatum to spotify you know either joe rogan goes or my music goes uh spotify said okay Goodbye, Neil Young. It's been nice knowing you. Uh, Young removed his music from the platform. He was followed by Joni Mitchell. Um, He's since been followed. They've since been followed by uh, India Ari and I think maybe a couple of other people. Oh, the the remaining members of uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young also said they wanted to take their music off the platform. Although I I can say it has not disappeared yet because I have some playlists with them on it and uh, and it's still playing. So anyway, um, this has been an ongoing and an evolving, crucially, campaign to remove Rogan. They, people who are his critics who generally don't listen to the show, they want him off Spotify. And it started with a claim that he was spreading disinformation about the COVID vaccines um, that was causing, yeah, like thousands of deaths. You know, there was this idea that he was directly responsible for many, many dead Americans. Um, Now, in the past few days, the campaign has pivoted to focus on Rogan as a racist. And if this doesn't stick, I'm sure it will pivot to focus on something else. There's the clear goal here is to get Rogan off the platform um, because I'm trying, I'm still actually trying to understand this. I think that there is a perception that he is legitimized in some way by being present on Spotify mm-hmm. in a way that he wasn't when he was available on, you know, other platforms when he was just an independent entity, when, you know, you could watch him on YouTube. There's this sense of Spotify being like, a more elite space. And, you know, here's this guy who's kind of like um, stinking up the joint. You know, this was a nice place with nice people. And now, you know, <laughs> there's this, this coarse and classless man who's into mixed martial arts and protein powder. And like, you know, we don't like having him here. And I think there's a perception or rather that perception has as much to do with who people understand Rogan's audience to be as with who Rogan himself actually is. Um, Which brings us back to this notion of the zombie. And I was really kind of struck by what you were talking about the, the podcast representing as like a sort of a, a background soundtrack for people who are doing something else where, you know, they're not necessarily like a rapt passive listener, you know, sitting in a chair with a notebook, like scribbling down everything they hear so they can live their lives according to like the gospel of Joe Rogan. They're doing something else. They're thinking at least, you know, with a certain part of their brain about something else. And then they have this podcast on in the background and maybe sometimes they're paying close attention to it. And maybe sometimes it's just noise to work by. But I think that the people who are criticizing Rogan and who find him to be frightening, who imagine that he has this incredible influence over his listeners and that he's causing people to make bad decisions, don't understand 
like who his listener is and how he's being listened to. They don't imagine a person just kind of having it on in the background. They imagine somebody listening, wrapped, captive, and really using this, you know, everything they hear on the podcast as a source of, of information. Yeah. And it reveals how they think that they're being listened to, right? Like they imagine that people are sitting there watching CNN with a pen in hand, you know, and like writing down, okay, how many, how many feet away do I have to sit from this stand? Can can I stand from this one? How many masks do I have to wear? Where should I buy these masks? Which ones, you know, like, you know, exactly. It's exactly right. You know, they're imagining this kind of their fantasy of what they believe they deserve, which is a totally wrapped, obedient zombie audience. And the thing that like, You know, the funny thing is they actually have that among the liberal elites that they're catering to, right? Like that's the the irony here is like they actually have something like they have created a kind of zombie effect on a lot of, you know, liberals who are otherwise very intelligent, but who have, you know, their brains have been co-opted by this COVID discourse where they can't make up their mind for themselves and literally can't see the flip-flops, right? On things like, you know, cloth masks, for example, right? Or whether, you know, vaccines can, can prevent you from spreading the disease. So, you know, they, they imagine this kind of audience, which is the audience that they have because they have alienated anybody working class, because they have made it impossible for anyone working class to watch and to see themselves represented in this coverage. But now they hold it against the people who are cleaning up with working class audiences by not doing that, by not insulting their viewers into thinking that, oh, yeah, I'm going to tell you what to do. In fact, Rogan himself said many times he's not anti-vax. He thinks everyone should do what they should do. His parents are vaccinated. You know, everyone should make their own decisions. Like, that's what they cannot abide is somebody saying to working class people what working class people believe, which is that everyone should make their own decisions. So I wonder if, you know, I do wonder if the liberal audience that we imagine, you know, watching CNN and, you know, kind of like taking it as gospel, if they really exist or if this is, I don't know, because the thing that I keep thinking about is many, many of us in the media also listen to podcasts. And I can't imagine being so, what's the word I'm looking for, deluded as to my own attention span. Like, I know full well that when I'm listening to a podcast, you know, frequently I lose track of what is being talked about because my mind has wandered elsewhere. Um, or, you know, I'll I'll realize that I've walked away from the podcast that was playing in another room to go do something else. You know, people listen to them while they're folding laundry or while they're taking walks. Like, is it really possible that people who imagine that Joe Rogan, you know, has these completely captive listeners who are hanging on his every word. Are they really listening? Are they, are they really consuming media that way? That's the thing that I kind of get stuck on. Well, I, I think they're not because, um, you know, their media is catering to, you know, that much more like, you know, overeducated knowledge industry job person, right? So, so the the media is very different. Like, you know, people like in our industries, we just don't have the time to sit there and listen to three hours of a meandering, whatever. You, what we listen to is like, you know, what people in the media listen to is, 
the 22 minute daily update, right? Like that's the perfect because it's like the time it takes you to drop your kids off in school, right? The time it takes you to cut up the vegetables for dinner or whatever it is. I'm not saying that working class people have more time on their hands, just that the kind of work that they do frees up their minds for the kind of meandering conversations. Um, I will say like, you know, I too am shocked every time I'm, you know, one of my liberal friends or family members says something to me that they clearly got verbatim from CNN or MSNBC and it's clear that they are still listening to these outlets and taking them (laughs) as gospel truth. Like at this point, you know, like with what everything we know, like you're, you're literally quoting to me something that has been discredited, but is still being pushed by this thing or that thing. And so, you know, when you said, are there really people doing that? You know, that, that, the, 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 the liberal overeducated affluent person living in Park Slope waiting every day for the Andrew Cuomo briefing on COVID, like that happened, you know, like they sat there and they got there, you know, and they wrote articles about it. And so I think that there is a sort of form of um, listening that does take place in that way. Um, it, but it is just so funny because, you know, liberals like Neil Young, like, he used to be this anti-authoritarian guy who was, you know, went on a free speech tour and so forth, right? And the second his side is in power, now he's the authoritarian, literally trying to silence anybody who's on the other side of it. I think Zed Jelani was the first one to make that point. So I think that there, mm-hmm. you know, it is really ironic to see the right become the side that's like live and let live, let people make their own decisions, my body, my choice, and the left be like, no, like literally o- over half of Democrats think that, um, you know, the the government and 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 big tech platforms should take things down and censor things from the government, you know, that aren't quote unquote correct according to the current science or whatever, um, which is insane. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that is wild. Um, I, you know, I, it's funny. I did not realize that the podcasts, like the Daily, are so short. I just thought that they were all as, as long as the ones that I tend to listen to. Um, and it oh, just no, occurred to really me, short. yeah, yeah, it just occurred to me that I mean, you know, another sort of healthy contingent of uh, Joe Rogan's audience um, are sort of gym rats. Totally, totally. Yeah. I was thinking that too. Yeah, yeah. If you spend a lot of time exercising and doing the type of exercise that, you know, that just kind of allows you to to zone out and listen to people talking, you know, as opposed to like a spin class or a bar class. Um, yeah, when I go to the gym to lift weights, that's when I've managed actually to listen to Joe Rogan's podcast. I've listened mm-hmm. to a few that he had um, when people I knew were actually the guests and I was like, oh, this should be interesting. Um, And yeah, you know, I would either like take a really long bike ride or go and lift for a while. And that was how I managed to actually consume an entire Rogan podcast in uh, (laughs) usually bits and pieces between sets. Um, But yeah, you know, I guess it's, it's that question of like, what are you doing? What is your leisure time in which you're consuming a podcast look like? Is it leisure or is it like, are you doing something else that leaves a certain portion of your brain free to sort of consume content. Um, So I wanted to talk about the space that Joe Rogan is filling now that's crucial because there's trust there. It's not just that his audience trusts him, it's that he trusts them. And in a moment when a lot of media can be quite condescending, you can sort of sense the hand of the author, like trying to shove you in the direction of the proper conclusions, that people are very drawn to any type of content that just doesn't do that, you know, that just kind of leaves things open and doesn't seem like it's lecturing you towards some kind of moral conclusion. 
I think he even maybe trusts them a little too much. Like he has platformed people that I do think go, you know, over the edge. Like he platformed somebody who, um, you know, has denied the Holocaust. And then, you know, there was somebody, you know, sometimes some conversations like, you know, race and IQ, like I feel like I would not have platformed that stuff. I don't think that, you know, I think this goes too far, whatever it is. But like, I'd rather have someone airing making those mistakes and keeping that Overton window open than have a culture that does what the mainstream media does, which is close it off so much that there is like, you know, like if you're not, if you've never made a mistake, I, I, as an opinion editor have given my, you know, published people that I regret, but it was out of that principle of like, we should really be trying to keep the, the window as open as possible. Um, because otherwise you get into this group thing situation that's happening on the left, you know, so I will say like, I'm not, you know, I can't, I can't endorse every single decision that he's made, but I think overall, I agree with you. Like, I think even the mistakes he's made have come from trusting his audience to be able to think for themselves. And I think that that is a, a, a real virtue that is completely absent from the mainstream media, especially liberal mainstream media. Well, it's interesting that you touched on some of the sort of crazier people that he's had on, including Holocaust deniers, obviously, like I consider that very morally problematic. Um, But that's not even sort of like when you start talking about the iceberg of crazy that's been represented on the Joe Rogan experience, you know, yeah, you've got vaccine skeptics. You've got like Oliver Stone, who uh, came on the show and espoused some truly bonkers conspiracy theories about the JFK assassination. Um, He's also had, you know, people who claim to have been abducted by aliens. And I wondered if part of what he's supplying is scratching the same itch as some of the sort of tabloid journalism, um, things mm. like the, like I've been thinking a lot this week about Bat Boy. Do you remember Bat Boy? No. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> okay. Um, so the Weekly World News, which I don't think exists anymore, in the, I want to say mid to late 90s, just did a real like banging business with this repeat story about a bat child that had been found in a cave. And like, Mm -hmm. there was this picture, this big eyed, pointy eared, screaming thing that was like, it was clearly like some kind of Photoshop job, except that Photoshop didn't really exist then, but you know, whatever it was, you know, something that they made. And there was this story, you know, about the bat boy and you would see bat boy. um, The weekly world news was one of the tabloids that was like, at the supermarket checkout line. And so like Mm -hmm. every day that you went to the grocery store, if, you know, assuming that you lived in a place where they had those displays up front, you had like your People Magazine, your Us Weekly, and then you started having like the trashier stuff. You had the Star, you had the National Enquirer, and -hmm. you had the Weekly World News. So it was this gamut of like human interest, celebrity gossip, like weird niche fitness trends, um, and then just like bonkers stuff like alien autopsy or the Bat Boy or, you know, Bigfoot sightings. And I wondered because, you know, those um, publications don't really exist anymore. Uh, You don't see them as much anymore. I mean, it's certainly not in print. And I wondered if Joe Rogan is in any way kind of scratching that itch in the podcasting space that, you know, people used to satisfy by reading something like the Weekly World News. 
I think he, to me, he, I've never met him, but he just seems like a person who is just like has an unquenching thirst to know things and is like a deeply curious person with a sort of sense of the, a healthy sense of the absurd and who, you know, very much enjoys getting into it with people, like especially crazy people, which is always fun to do. So I think to me, like, you know, again, like the the crazy stems from a very healthy place that is has been lost in mainstream media, which is, you know, curiosity, skepticism, you know, the desire to engage, the desire to really get to the bottom of something that sounds nuts, right? Maybe there's something here. You know, a lot of amazing journalism comes from that instinct of like, oh, maybe there is something here. Right? I think I think Rogan believes in aliens and um, you know, you know, maybe there are, maybe there aren't, I don't know, but it's, you know, the, the, the people making the claim that the COVID stuff is the least crazy stuff you'll hear, even in the crazy department on the Joe Rogan podcast, you know, I, I, I very much appreciate that point. <laughs> yeah. All right. I am um, just briefly, if you have access to your email, I've just sent you a picture of oh, okay. that boy. Oh, okay. I see what you're talking about. Have, have uh, you seen this before? No, I have not. <laughs> <laughs> his giant eyes see in the dark and his ears are better than radar, say scientists. Obviously, the the visual element and the fact that this was like a print rag that you could buy when you were getting your groceries, you know, that added something to the experience. But there's something about the sort of pseudoscience where I think, you know, you have stories like this, you have, you know, a guy talking firsthand about his alien abduction experience, you have things that are like, kind of um, almost mainstream or like, like legitimate science adjacent, like ancient aliens on the history channel, uh -huh. you know, like what, you know, what's that doing on there? Um, so yeah, I think that there's this, I don't know, this sort of moving target when it comes to people wanting to talk about what's legitimate, what's valid, um, people trying to kind of draw hard lines between what's news versus what's pure entertainment that has made this conversation very tense and very complicated. Well, you know, one of the stories that put Benjamin Day's um, The Sun on the map was the great moon hoax. And it's still unknown whether Benjamin Dane knew that it was a hoax when he printed it, but he ran this really long story about a man, a scientist who had a telescope that could see to the far side of the moon and that he picked up on all of these creatures that he was seeing there and he described them. And, you know, that was really the story that made the sun that put it over the edge and made it into like the best selling paper in New York. So, you know, you know, there's a, a long history of <laughs> journalists indulging in this kind of thing. Wow. So that story was, was it fabricated by yeah. the scientist well, I mean, himself or was it, was it Day's idea? Exactly. I mean, that's exactly the question is like, did Day, did the journalist who wrote it, the, 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 the scientist himself certainly had no idea about it. He pulled his name out of, out of a hat essentially, but did the journalist tell Benjamin Day that he had made this up or did he pass it off as true and Benjamin Day's eyeballs became dollar signs? Like we never know. Um, but um, that, yeah, that's still the, the historical record is not clear on that, but um, you know, New Yorkers were very, very excited to read about the, uh, the great moon hoax and, and, you know, what all manner of creatures that were, could be seen copulating, you know, from the distance. of. Uh, oh, he wasn't, he wasn't just watching them. He was watching them have sex. Sex. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Wow. That is. They were, I believe that they were actually also half bats and half humans. Um, you know, there was there was definitely a bat element there. <laughs> God, I have so many questions, including like which 
which half was the person right, exactly, which half was the exactly. bat and like you know <laughs> clearly i just have a scientific yearning to understand how the copulation was actually occurring like okay. i really want the the detailed a to b diagram here maybe joe rogan will have an episode about it <laughs> yeah well uh, you know this he could he could finally you know be the one to debunk the great moon hoax yes Absolutely. That is remarkable. Okay, so this to me seems like a good place to kind of slide from discussing Joe Rogan over to discussing our personal role as media folks. Um, You know, you are in an even more legitimate role than I am as the editor of a legacy publication. So uh, this is the part of the episode that we're going to hold back for subscribers. So... um, This has been Feminine Chaos.